And this morning, I uh, invite you to turn with me to uh, the book of 2 Samuel. And while you're doing that, you should have uh, an insert in the bulletin this morning that has a sermon notes page. And on there, you'll see, uh, as always, a quick little summary and a little outline and some points for you to follow along this morning. Uh, We've been in a series. We're going to be in 2024, going through the whole Bible, uh, book by book, one at a time, and uh, giving you the big picture, the the summary of it all to show us uh, how it all points us to God's faithfulness. And we see uh, pictures and shadows, as the Bible calls them, types and shadows of the coming Savior in the Old Testament. And we see that he's come in the New Testament. And so we've gone from Genesis through 1 Samuel. That was last Sunday was 1 Samuel. And this morning, 2 Samuel. So uh, just keep your eye out there on that outline. Uh, You'll see there uh, the big outline of the whole book. We're not going to touch it all, of course, but uh, I'll hit up some high points and point out some things that are important for us to meditate upon and focus on uh, as we come to 2 Samuel. So the king is dead. That's how 1 Samuel ended. The king is dead. But we saw with King Saul that he was the king that Israel wanted so that they would be like the nations. And the Lord gave them what they wanted. He gave them King Saul as a judgment. So the king is dead. And we pick up in 2 Samuel with this true king, God's king, in fact, who was very much alive and well and ruling and uh, are beginning to rule and ruling over all the people of God. So 1 Samuel is the story mostly of Saul, we saw, uh, he's dead. And now the true king, David, the king after God's own heart, takes up his rule and his reign. The second half of what we call, or what the, Hebrew, the Jewish people call Samuel, we call it First and Second Samuel. So the second half of it is Second Samuel. It's all about the dynasty and the deeds of King David, the man after God's own heart. And I want to focus this morning, our hearts and our minds and our eyes uh, here in the scriptures, upon David, a little bit of David at the beginning of the story, uh, how he uh, actually becomes king. We saw that he's already been anointed, but how does he actually become king? How does he begin to reign? Uh, What is his reign like? Uh, What is he like? And then we'll see his son, this promise and prophecy of a kingdom uh, or a son, uh, and then we'll see how it all ends. So we have David here. We'll see a little bit of this promise, the very important passage, 2 Samuel 7, uh, sort of the high point of the whole book, and then Uh, how it all concludes. And so the king is dead, but yet that was Israel's king. God's king, David, is alive. And we see his dynasty and his deeds as the man who was after God's own heart. So in chapter one, uh, Samuel opens up with David hearing this news. He hears that the king is dead after the death of Saul, verse one begins. So he hears this news that the king is dead. uh, And he hears that where? He hears it down in Philistia. He's amongst the Philistines, these enemies of God, these perennial and perpetual enemies uh, who were constantly fighting against the people of God. And David took up refuge, sadly and surprisingly, amongst the Philistines. And so while he's there amongst these uh, unwashed Gentiles uh, who are supposed to have been uh, kicked out of the land, back in the story of Joshua and in Judges, that didn't actually happen, we saw. He's there amongst the Philistines, on the run, and Saul's men are still hounding him uh, and seeking to hurt him, ultimately 
to put him to death. But he hears the news. The king is dead. But he also hears other news, even more sad news, even more personally sad news for him, which is that Saul's son, David's best friend, is dead. What's his name? Jonathan. Good. So Saul is dead and Jonathan, the best friend of David, is dead. And that leads to this very lengthy lament uh, beginning at verse number 19 with that very famous phrase, how the mighty have fallen. Verse number 19 there, and you see it all the way down through verse number 27. How the mighty have fallen, verse 27, and the weapons of war perish. David laments. Although he's already been anointed as the king, and he's the one after God's own heart, and Saul is the king that Israel wanted that God gave uh, in punishment for their sin, yet David laments, yet David is sorrowful towards the anointed king, Saul, and especially his best friend. So chapter 2 opens up with him inquiring. Notice that verse 1. He inquired of the Lord. And we've seen that phrase again. Uh, Joshua, after he died, uh, uh, many people amongst the tribe of Judah in the days of the, before the judges, they inquired of the Lord, saying, where should we go? Uh, how should we fight? Who should we take with us? Against whom should we fight? And the Lord gave an answer, and they went off and fought their battles. The book of Judges, chapter 1. We see a very similar thing here with David. He inquires after the death of the leader, Saul, about where to go. And the Lord leads him, as verse 1 says, to Hebron, uh, where he is anointed. Uh, you see there, verse 4, the men of Judah, that's the, the line, remember, all the way back in Genesis 49, that's, this is the line of the kings of Israel. Saul was not of that line. Saul was not of that tribe. Which tribe was Saul from again? The tribe of Benjamin. So now we have men from Judah, which is the tribe of the kings. They came and then they anointed David king over the house of Judah. So notice that. He's already been anointed back, by, back in 1 Samuel by Samuel the prophet to be king. But he actually wasn't king in practical reality. And here he's anointed again. But notice he's anointed only over the tribe or the house of Judah. So his kingship is uh, beginning to come into focus, but yet uh, it's still not quite there. And so he's king over the tribe, the region of Judah. Now, in verses 5 and 6, he even praises Saul's men. Notice this is the Saul who threw a spear at him, the Saul who tried to put him to death, the Saul that sent his men after him and hounded him uh, for years upon years. But he praises Saul's men, verses 5 and 6, uh, that they had buried him, that they had given him a dignified burial uh, as king of Israel. And then he proclaimed to them in verse 7, Now therefore let your hands be strong and be valiant, for Saul your Lord is dead, and the house of Judah has anointed me king over them. Now, things should have gone well at this point. But notice verse number 8, but, right, but, Abner, the commander of Saul's army. David should have been king, but yet Abner, the commander of Saul's army, takes one of Saul's sons, Ishbosheth, and makes him, verse number nine says, king over all Israel. King over all Israel, verse number nine. Now, this leads to a battle. Inevitably, it would, would have led to a battle, and, and it did. And there's a battle there in a place called Gibeon, and there's a fight between some of David's men, some of Saul's men. 
And a long war ensued, chapter 3 tells us. A long war between the house of Saul and the house of David. And as this war is going on for years, the house of David grows stronger and stronger. The house of Saul becomes weaker and weaker. And so Abner, reading the tea leaves, right, he puts his finger up to the wind and sees the political winds of change, and he has this plan, it's really a deceptive plan, uh, that he hatches, which is to join David. Now, he's the one who just anointed a false king, don't, don't forget that. So he, he anoints, or he proclaims that Ishbosheth is king of all, over all of Israel, but the thing, things aren't going well for Ishbosheth and this kingdom of Saul. And so Abner is going to deceive that he's going to join with David. But we see at the end of chapter, chapter number three that Joab, this servant of David, kills this captain, this commander, Abner. Uh, and then notice how in chapter four, uh, notice Ishbosheth's response. Don't forget, he's the king. He's the king over all of Israel. He has more territory. He has a larger army. He has more men. He has more everything than David. But we see really who he is. Chapter 4, verse 1. This led to Ishbosheth's courage to fail. And in fact, all of Israel, over whom he ruled, verse 1, was dismayed. Finally, this leads to a coup. This leads to a regicide, a, king, a death of a king. Some of Saul's former raiding party murders Ishbosheth. That's verse 6, 7, and 8. Uh, and as all this comes to an end, this years long battle between the house of David and the house of Saul, David is anointed king in chapter number 5. And he's anointed king. Notice this time, as verse 1 says, chapter 5, uh, the, all the tribes of Israel came. Uh, and so he's anointed king and he's proclaimed king over all of the tribes of Israel. Now, his first act, notice, his first act is found in verse 6. What does he do? He's finally king over all of Israel. What does he do? This is going to be a sort of a foreshadowing uh, in literary, literary terms. This is a foreshadowing of what is going to happen in chapters 6 and 7. He goes and fights a battle with the Jebusites. Where the Jebusites live? Where do the Jebusites live? It's right there in front of you. You don't even need to tell you that, loved ones. Where do the Jebusites live? Jerusalem. Why is Jerusalem so important? Is it important? Why? It's going, yeah, it's going to be the city of the king, and, but most of all, which king? The city, of, the city of David, only the city of David? Is he the real king? The Lord. It's the, king, the, the house of God. This is where God is going to do our loved ones. So his first act is to go to Jerusalem, fight the Jebusites, so that there would be place, we're going to see in chapter 7, for a house of God himself. He wins battles. But in all the euphoria of victory, notice what he does there, intermixed with all these battles and all this victory, even Hiram, king of Sire, is sending him cedar trees. This again is foreshadowing what he's going to build uh, in chapter 7, or what he wants to build in chapter 7. But notice in the middle of all this, battles and winning and anointings and everybody's pledging obedience and foreign kings and dignitaries are sending him uh, wealth and treasures uh, and he's destroying and winning victories over cities. Notice what verse 13 says. What did David do? He took more concubines 
and wives. So circle that word took. We're going to come to that in just a bit. We've seen it before in the Old Testament, the, the, the verb to take. It's important in this context. So he takes or he took more concubines and wives. And where did he take them from? Where did he take them from? Jerusalem. Who lived in Jerusalem at the time? The Jebusites. Who are the Jebusites? Are they God's covenant people or not? No, he takes foreign wives. He takes many of them, right? More concubines, more wives. And you see a list there of some of his sons, including Solomon is listed there at uh, verse number 14, 15, 16. Uh, Even more of his wives and concubines and sons and uh, the list goes on. Now, we saw back in Deuteronomy chapter number 17, the Lord said, one day uh, you are going to have a king. So having a king wasn't the problem. The problem was that Israel, we saw in 1 Samuel, wanted a king like the nations. And so God said, now when you ask for a king like the nations, what's he going to do? We saw that he's going to conscript their sons and daughters, he's going to enslave his own people. He's going to use them to farm his fields. He's going to take their fields, in fact, the best of them for himself. He's going to use the, uh, your, your, your sons and daughters to build uh, an army of chariots. He's going to accumulate all kinds of horses and all kinds of gold and silver. But also, he's going to take to himself many wives. That was Deuteronomy 17. So David is doing exactly, sadly, shockingly, what the Lord said a king like the nations was going to be like. David shouldn't be this. This is the man for God's own heart we've seen. But yet we see this mixture in him that yes, he is a picture and he's the, 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 the king of Israel par excellence. He's the one that all their kings are measured by, but yet he's still a sinner. We see in David pictures of the Messiah, the anointed one, Jesus Christ himself. But we also see, negatively speaking, even in his sins and his fallenness, And his follies, we see also in those things, pictures of Jesus. How? But also the fact that he's a sinner and the Savior to come is not going to be a sinner. That David's not the final king. He's not the one that the the Lord through Jacob said to Judah was going to come. David is, is one king amongst many kings, but there's one yet to come. And so we see in the middle of all this, and even as the chapter goes on to say in verse 17 and following chapter 5, that he defeats, the uh, conquers the Philistines, he recaptures the crown jewel of the tabernacle. What's the most important piece of furniture in the tabernacle? The Ark of the Covenant. Last Tuesday night at our Bible study, we looked at the book of Numbers, chapters 1 through 4. And we mentioned that of all the pieces of furniture, this was the most important. How? Because only the priests could go into the tabernacle, cover up the ark with the great veil, and then put layers upon layers of curtains on it. Finally and lastly, a blue curtain. And that was the only piece of furniture that had a colorful curtain on the outside as they carried it on their poles throughout the wilderness. Everything else was covered up in goatskins. But the ark was separated. It was distinguished. It was shown to be that one piece of furniture that was the king's throne. 
And so he goes back into the land of the Philistines where the ark had been taken and captured from the tabernacle and he grabs it back. And that's, that chapter 6 describes that in David's great joy uh, and his dancing before the Lord uh, and their sacrificing in praise to God that the ark of the covenant, the very throne of God itself was going back to the place to where God had said to put it in Shiloh uh, in the tent. And so, in summary, these first six chapters show us that even with our leaders, right, we pray every Sunday for those in authority who rule over us, and uh, we engage throughout certain times of the year and certain seasons of our uh, even national and uh, state and local life, the issue of politics and leaders. And we see that even with our leaders, that here with David, there's a mixed bag of good and bad. He's a mixed bad, a bag of good and bad. The difference was that he wasn't supposed to be like everyone else around him. He was supposed to be a king after God's own heart. He was supposed to follow the law of God. He was supposed to, as Deuteronomy 7 said, he was supposed to be the king that God himself set apart and anointed. That brings us to chapter 7. So chapters 1 through 6, David's deeds and his dynasty, a little bit of a summary there. And that brings us to chapter number 7. So why did he first, the first thing he did when he was anointed king over all of Israel, why did he go to Jerusalem to fight the Jebusites? Why did he go into Philistia to take back the Ark of the Covenant? What's going on? Why did Hiram, king of Cyrus, send him cedar trees? Because David had a plan. David had a plan. Now, just like with, with you and me, we, we probably have a, 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 a timeline of our own lives and we, we all know the mundane details of life, but there are certain times, certain events in our lives that are the high points, uh, the moments that we like talking about the most. And 2 Samuel in the life of David is that moment. It's this moment that shapes the rest of his story as well as the story of the Israelites. One commentator said it occupies 2 Samuel 7 it occupies the dramatic and theological center of the entire Samuel corpus. This is the center, the heart of Samuel. Why? Notice David's plan. David had a plan. Why? why did he, again, why did he go to Jerusalem? Why did Hiram send him cedar trees? It was probably because he had already been sort of overturing for these cedar trees of Lebanon. Why did he go take the ark? Because he had a plan. He had a plan to build a house for God. When the king lived in the house, notice chapter 7, verse 1, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, that, that verbiage there of rest that comes from Joshua, we saw a little bit in Judges, so the Lord has now given David rest from all his surrounding enemies. The king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. Circle that word house. You're going to see it a bunch here. David lives in a house of wood, cedar, that is, the ark of God, the throne of God. The king himself lives in a tent. Now, we're not told David's motivation here. Other than, other than this observation that he, as the king, 
was living in this nice house while the true king was living in a tent. Now, back in Deuteronomy chapter 12, I think I mentioned this a few weeks ago, uh, that the Lord said through Moses that one day Israel was going to enter the promised land and the ark that was dwelling in a movable tent, just like the Israelites lived in movable tents, one day that ark was going to be located in one place. The difference is in Deuteronomy chapter 12, the Lord said he would choose that location. Now, he told them to put it in Shiloh, first of all. Here we have this, we imply that it was David's motivation to put it here next to his house in Jerusalem. Now, the rest of the chapter goes on to describe the fact that God was going to be gracious to David first, so that David is here wanting to build a house, but it was God who was going to be gracious. And so the, the prophet tells David, go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. We see God's presence there as well, verse 3. But God had a plan. So David had a plan, God had a plan, the Lord had a plan. David's plan was to build a house for the Lord. The Lord's promise, the Lord's plan was a promise of the reverse, a house for David. Thus says the Lord, look at verse 5, would you build me a house? There's that word again. Would you build me a house to dwell in? And one of the things that we see here is God's utter freedom to do His will. Not to be boxed in by David's or even our plans. If God wants a house, God's going to have a house. He'll determine where and when and what of that house. So when, he said, when the Lord says, would you build me a house? It reminds us of what we'll see in 1 Chronicles, that when this story is retold later on in 1 Chronicles 28, the Lord tells David that David was not going to build him a temple. Why not? He's a man of war. He's a man of blood. His hands were stained. And you, David, think you can build me a holy house? Your hands are stained with blood. So the Lord recounts then, the Lord recounts that he's lived among his people in a tent up until this time, since the days of the Exodus. Uh, verse, verses number... Uh, oh. There it is. Uh, verse 6. Verse 6. Uh, I have not lived in a house, there's that word, since the day I brought up my people out of Egypt, uh, out of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I've been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? So David has this plan, but the Lord is saying, you know, first of all, you're not the one who's going to build it. You're a man of blood and a man of war. And when did I ever say anything about a house? I mentioned that I was going to have a place to put the tabernacle back to Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 12. But where did I say, build me a house of cedar? You see, God was saying that he was willing and he was very content to live among his people in humility, in the lowliness of tents, in the, in the lowliness of, 
of even when David had a house of cedar to still be in the tabernacle. The God who made the world and everything in it, as the Apostle Paul said, he's Lord of heaven and earth. He does not live in temples made by hands, nor is he served by human hands as if he needed anything. That's what God is trying to impress upon David. Now, later on in the history of salvation, of course, this, this whole idea of David being king and there's a house of God, there's a throne of God, there's the presence of God and the ark and the tabernacle later on the temple. All this is going, of course, to come to its full realization in David's son, in the Lord himself who stoops down. And though he was in the form of God, the Apostle Paul said, he did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The Lord was perfectly content to dwell in lowliness. And in fact, the tabernacle showed that. Yes, it showed the presence of God amongst his people and the glory of God, but most of all, it showed the, the, the humility, the lowliness, the condescension of God, that God dwells with us. God stoops down to us. He doesn't need us to build him anything. God is content to live amongst us. And he did that in his son Jesus who came and took upon himself the form of a servant and he lived in a lowly way. He was despised and rejected by men. And he was crucified, amen? Amen. That was his plan all along. That was his plan to be humbled to the point of death so that we who are humble might be raised up. The one who is rich beyond all measure, as we sang, as, as Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse number 9, the one who is who's without limit, who has all things and all treasures and all riches, that one who is rich became poor for your sake, so that you who are poor in your sins might, through Jesus Christ, become rich. And so David wants to build this house of cedar, and God says, you're not going to build that for me. I don't need you to build me anything. I've lived in tents with my people ever since the Exodus. And I'm very happy to do so. The heart of the Lord's word to David is in verses 8 through 16. The Lord doesn't merely respond to David's desire, but he expresses what he will do for David. Notice this. What he will do for David. And reminds David of all of his past faithfulness. Verse 8, I took you from the pasture from following the sheep that you should be prince over my people Israel. His faithfulness to David continued all the way to this very present moment when, where, where we're at in the story. Verse number 9, I've been with you wherever you went. I've cut off all your enemies from before you, right? It's God who's doing all the work here. And some of the, what the Lord says to David and his promises to David, they're the fulfillment of what God had already been saying for generations. When the Lord says in verse number 9, and I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. What does that sound like to you? It sounds exactly like the Lord's promise to Father Abram. Genesis 12, verse 2. Look at at verses 10 and 11. I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them. 
so that they may dwell in their own place and be, distri- be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly. From the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. That's Genesis 15, verses 7 through 21 in particular. What a God, loved ones. What a God. He's saying to David that he's utterly reliable, that he's doing exactly what he always planned to do, despite David. Right? Despite David, despite the great works of his hands on the one hand, despite the lowliness of his sins on the other, despite you, David, I am faithful. I am reliable. Will God be reliable and faithful to us? Is this same God who is the God of David, the God of Moses, the God of Jacob, the God of Isaac, all the way back to Father Abraham, was this, is this the same God that we love and serve today? Reliable, faithful, unlike anything in this life, unlike the fine print of every, probably pretty much everything that we sign our names to, including investment strategies, past performance is not indicative of future results, right? God's not like that. We sang that He's holy, holy, holy today. He's unlike anyone and anything else. Past performance is not indicative of future returns. Not with God. Our future hope is based upon His past performance. With the world, there's risk and instability. With God, the God who loved David, the God who loves us, His past faithfulness to His promises is the reason we can trust Him today and have hope in Him for tomorrow. And then he says in verse 11, this, this, the astonishing part of all that he's saying here. So, you know, David, David is, he's winning battles. His head is getting big. He's taking all these wives to himself. And the Lord humbles him and says, you know what? The Lord declares, verse 11, that the Lord will make for you, for you, a house. Notice that word house. And there's a little play on words here because, because David wants to build a house for the Lord, meaning a literal house of wood, while the Lord is going to build a house, meaning a dynasty, a kingdom for David. David wants to house God in this little box. Yes, the temple was grand and glorious, but a little box. And God is going to expand David's mind and horizons and be faithful to him, and because he's faithful to him, to the whole world. His kingdom, we said in the Nicene Creed, his kingdom has no end. The temple had a, had a roof, and it had a floor, and it had walls. It had ends. It had context. You could walk in, but you can butt yourself up into a wall. You could go no further. God's kingdom, through Jesus Christ, has no end. And this promise can't be annulled, notice. It can't be annulled. David's death itself can't even annul this promise. Look at verses 12 and 13. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, i.e. you die, I, the Lord says, I will raise up offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. Now notice this. 
He's going to give him offspring, but notice he's speaking in the singular here. And I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house. And he's literally speaking now of the house that David wanted to build. For my name. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So notice that his son after him, we know this is Solomon from the whole whole story, but his son is going to build the house. And I'm going to establish. Notice when he told David, I'm going to build you a house. Now he tells David, I'm going to establish what for your son? Verse 13. A kingdom, right? The house that God is speaking of is a kingdom. That's how we know that, because he tells us. So not even David's death could annul the promise. Not even David's sin or the sin of his son would annul the promise. This offspring, he says in verse number 14, uh, he says of him, I will be to him a father, he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, and he will, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men, but my steadfast love. There's that, that special word that we've heard uh, probably a hundred times already, chesed, which speaks of the faithfulness of God. When God says something, he's going to do it. How do we know that? Because he's already done it before. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, and so forth. The grace of God, notice, this is what it says to us. The grace of God alone is what sustains the people of God and even the promises of God to his people. Not their faithfulness, but even in their faithlessness, God remains faithful. When Solomon sins, the son sins, but my steadfast love will not depart. When, When God is always faithful to us. When we go off the path, he's steadfast. He's stable when we are on shifting sands. He's immovable when our lives spin out of control. But I am faithfully set. And not even, not even time itself can annul the promise. Your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me, verse 16. Your throne shall be established forever. So this high point, this center point of the whole story of Samuel, it, it all leads us, we're hearing this language here, it all leads us all the way back in our Bibles to Genesis 3.15, where we began. All the way back to the Lord's promise of a son or, a, or of an offspring who's going to come out of Eve and that offspring is going to crush the serpent's heads. And we're hearing that here. Just like we take photos and we, 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 we zoom in on someone or something and as we're zooming in, the, the camera is coming into focus more and more upon particular things and maybe we, we, we scan out here in the beach and we want to focus in on one seagull, right? Or one dolphin that we can see its, its dorsal fin popping up out of the water and the, and the screen focuses on that one thing. In the same way, we have God's promises They're being zoomed in upon here because not only would the Lord bring a Savior to the world through one nation as He promised the father Abraham, not only through even just one tribe would a king come, the tribe of Judah, but now the lens focuses upon one family 
in that one tribe of Judah, amongst that one people of Israel. And it's in that one man's family, in his house, that the king is going to come. And then we open up our New Testaments. And what do we read? The very first words in the entirety of the New Testament. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Messiah, Jesus Christ. Who is he? The son of David. The son of David. And so David gives thanks. He ends that chapter, or we end that chapter as we order chapters with a beautiful prayer of thanksgiving. Chapter 8, chapter 10, even more victory. Even more victory. The kingdom has come. Things are on the up and up. Time for a celebration. Not so fast. Not so fast. As I mentioned, even in all the glories of David, all the high points of David, all of God's faithfulness to David, and even to Solomon, not so fast. He turns his sights on a final victory over the, Ammon, uh, over the Ammonites in chapter number 11. They go out and they, and they, and they ravage and besiege Rabbah, we're told there, verse 1, chapter number 11. But notice in contrast, he sends out Joab and all of Israel to fight his battles for him, but David remained at Jerusalem. He's the king. Why is he not out there crushing the serpent's heads? What is he doing? The story tells us what he's doing. It just happened to happen. That's one of those biblical, I mentioned those phrases in the Bible. It happened. Such and such, verse 2. That's one of those phrases the Bible uses to describe at times the providence of God and his goodness towards his people. Things just happened this way, right? But at other times it shows us the depths of sin. David arose from his couch and was walking the roof of the, of the king's house. And pay close attention to verse three, uh, verses 2 and 3. I told you to, uh, when it said there in that chapter, what was it, number 6, that he took wives. Oh, where is that? Chapter 5. When chapter 5, verse 13 said, David took more concubines and wives. I told you to circle that verb, took. Why? Because here we see it again. Notice Chapter 11, verses 2 and 3. He saw, so that verb too, he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman, what, woman was what? Very beautiful. Very beautiful. Literally, it's speaking of her being good. So he saw, he saw something that was good, very beautiful. David sent and inquired about the woman, and one said, Is not this Bathsheba the wife of Uriah the Hittite? What did David do? David, notice the verb, took her. And he lay with her. Saw, good, took. What does that sound like? Sounds like the fall, doesn't it? Sounds like the fall. He saw. She was very beautiful, tov, good, and took her. And we've seen in the, in the Old Testament uh, time and time again this language of taking. The sons of God took for themselves the daughters of men. We saw Lamech taking for himself multiple wives and so forth. 
This describes fallenness, sinfulness. So here's the king is sending out his armies on his behalf and he stays back to engage in adultery, to engage in lying, to engage in murder. Long live the king, amen? Kids, you might not understand all that's going on here, but you, you know that when you do one thing, it sometimes leads to another thing and then to another thing. And sometimes we, make one, we, we do one little thing, uh, we, we sin in one way, steal something that doesn't belong to us, lie about it to, to our mom or our dad, hide it from them. You get found out, you feel guilty, your brother snitches on you, right? your sister tells on you. That leads you to say, I hate you to them, right? It's just one, one sin leads to another. Like a little snowball ro- rolling down a mountain just becomes bigger and bigger and bigger. And we see that with David here. He engages in adultery against God's Ten Commandments. He engages in lying. This whole story of how he gets Uriah the Hittite to come to him, uh, to send him out, and so forth. It's all lying. It's all hiding the truth. He has a plan behind it. He even tries to get, when Uriah won't go uh, and lay with his wife because he's trying to cover up his own sin to make it seem like she got pregnant from Uriah, uh, and that doesn't happen because Uriah says, how can, I, how can I sleep in my own bed with my own wife when my fellow uh, soldiers are sleeping in tents out, uh, out in, the, in the sun or out in the, in the cold of night? How can I do that? So David says, well, I'm going to get him drunk. I'm going I'm I'm to force the issue. But that doesn't even work. He has to resort to murder. He tells Joab, he sends Joab a letter from the very, in, in the very handwriting of Uriah, he tries to trick, to set Uriah at the forefront, verse 15 tells us of chapter number 11. Put him at the forefront of the hardest fighting, then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. And Joab follows orders, and we know the story. We know how it happened. So here's the king, uh, committing adultery, lying, Tricking, deceiving, conniving, and responsible for murder. But J.C. Ryle once told us this. A right knowledge of sin lies at the heart of all saving Christianity. The amazing thing about God and all these stories is that he's a covenant-keeping God. He's faithful to his promises. Even when David did what displeased the Lord, it was the Lord alone who could turn it to good. Chapter 12 describes the prophet Nathan, of course, uh, confronting him and uh, that famous phrase, thou art the man, and David's sin is uncovered. He goes on to write Psalm 51, the confession of sin uh, on that occasion of his sin. Uh, being uncovered and he is deeply struck with guilt uh, and responsibility for his sin. And so God uses it uh, for the good of his own salvation. And we read so beautifully how God even uses this sin of David. He turns it to good. How? Because in Matthew's gospel, chapter 4, there's a, or chapter 1, that is, uh, there's that genealogy of the Lord. The gospel of Jesus, the son of David, the son 
of Abraham. When we read in that genealogy, we saw, we've seen Rahab already, a Gentile woman included in that genealogy. There's also a mention of, quote, the wife of Uriah. Do you know that in the genealogy of Jesus, Matthew's gospel, that the wife of Uriah is one of the great-grandmothers of Jesus? What you meant for evil, God meant for good. We see that right here. Because she's there in the story of Jesus. It shows us that sinners like us can have a place too. That God saves sinners. That he turns sin to salvation. His enemies become his friends. Orphans become children. So yes, David is great and glorious and wonderful and the stories are, we read these stories and we're maybe inspired by them or maybe we're confused by them, but they all show us this wonderful picture that God saves sinners. God saves sinners. And the Lord says to you this morning, as, we, as you look at 2 Samuel, if you go back and read it, you'll see there's a lot of sin here. There's a lot of sin here. But God loves sinners. And God says to you that knowing your sin. That lies at the very heart of the gospel. To know ourselves needy and sinful, in need of cleansing, in need of forgiveness, in need of reconciliation, in need of God doing what we cannot do for ourselves. That's the gospel. And Jesus, the great, great, great grandson of the wife of Uriah, the wife of Rahab, the prostitute, he saved sinners. Come to him today and find salvation. Find a home. Find rest. Find forgiveness. Find God a, in God a reconciling God. Find in him a smile of his face looking down upon you as his child. That he says to you, I love you, sinner. I sent my son for you. Give yourself to me and live forever. Let's pray. We thank you, Lord, for the gospel of the Lord Jesus, that great son of David, the son of God. Help us now to believe, help our unbelief. Assure us at the Lord's table. Feed us with Christ himself in the bread and wine so that we will know that we already have a place in your kingdom now and... You've gone to prepare that place for us. And one day you'll say to us, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy prepared for you. And we ask it all in Jesus' name and all of God's people say, Amen. <clears throat>